Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4? If you're visiting with us, you should know that um, we have been studying through this letter for some time now. Uh, We took a break from it this past Sunday on Christmas, but we now return to it. And as we do, I'm going to try to remind us of some of the things that we saw at the very end of chapter 3, because I think they have great bearing on how we understand this new section in the beginning of chapter 4. For the first 13 verses of chapter 4 are a continuation of the argument that he began making in chapter 3, particularly verses 7 through the end. So we're going to return to that in just a moment. But we we typically here at our church study through books of the Bible in their entirety. Um, We feel like it's the most faithful way to study God's Word, to hear His voice. Uh, We think that it is the way that God has given us His Word, and it keeps us from error in looking at it in that fashion. And so that's our typical practice. And so we're going to be jumping in where we uh, left off. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 together. I hope that this passage is a great encouragement to you today. It's a passage about rest. It's a passage about rest. I don't know, are you tired? I mean, really, man, as we're going to see in just a moment, the the, the fact that God promises us rest is great, great news. Um, And I hope that it is for you this morning. Before we read it together, let's pray. Oh, Oh, Lord, our God, give us a mind and a heart that are ready and willing to be changed by your word. God, as, as we now come to read it, we need your help. We need you to illuminate us and our, our hearts and minds that we would be able to understand it. We need you to give knowledge and wisdom as we read. Um, we need you to do a great miracle by the power of your spirit to implant its truth deep within us that it would take root and, um, God, that it would have its work in us. God, may your word now not return to you void. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, as those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, as I said, this passage, these verses, they are the continuation of the argument that he began, particularly back in chapter 3, verse 7. This is an exposition or an expansion, if you will, by the author of this letter on Psalm 95. All of the quotations that you see where it talks about today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those are direct quotations from Psalm 95. And the author of this letter is taking Psalm 95 out of the Old Testament and is interpreting it and applying it to the church in his day and consequently to us today. This is in the New Testament. The New Testament church is being gathered. Christ had already come and accomplished redemption and applied it to his people. And so he is taking that psalm and interpreting it, if you will, for them. And we're given this explanation or this expansion on those verses. But what we found in verses 7 through 19 of chapter 3 is a warning. You find it there in verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he's going back to Psalm 95, and he's using the children of Israel's experience in the exodus out of Egypt as an example of unbelief. As an example of unbelief. It becomes very important. We see that again down at the end of verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That is, that there is a danger that causes us to fall away from God in that sense. And it is to give into the deceitfulness of sin the promises that it makes for happiness and joy, satisfaction and contentment, and to begin to look there rather than to Jesus. Remember, this is Hebrews. This is the book that is all about the sufficiency of Jesus, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the revelations that have preceded him. He's better than the prophets that came before, that he can accomplish for us what no one and no nothing else can. And In the end of chapter 3, we see there that whatever promises that sin makes for joy and happiness and contentment, they will leave us wanting. But if we will not be found becoming prey to sin and wickedness and its deceit, but we will be steadfast in our belief and trust in Christ, then we will indeed find a joy and a satisfaction and a salvation that will not fade away but will last. So he's talking about believing in Jesus Christ. And so then he turns and he says, you see there the the connecting word, therefore. So, So based on this previous argument, he's going to move into a separate phase of that argument. And it goes something like this. Previously, he's arguing about the danger of allowing Uh, an unbelieving and wicked heart to enter in that would separate us from God. And now he's going to move to say the danger of being found in unbelief or having an unbelieving wicked heart found in us is that it will keep us from entering into rest, from from finding rest. So so that's the basic progression. It's kind of of a one-point sermon. So so we're going to walk down through that together What I want us to do first is I want us to see and sort of make an attempt to feel the weight and the sweetness 
of the promise of rest, that there is rest for Christians, that there is rest for God's people. That by God's design in creation and by God's appointment and sovereign providence, there is for us a rest, and that's really good news. And then I want us to ask three questions. How do we enter into that rest? Where do we find that rest? And why do we need it? Okay, so that's where we're going. But first, I want us to see something of the promise of this rest. Look at what he says. Therefore, and you see it right off the bat, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. And then he's going to go on, he's going to talk about some other things, but then go down to verse 4. It says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And it tells us later in the passage that if, verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is very interesting. It's very interesting language. On the one hand, it's promising us a rest that God has ordained, but it is also promising us a participation in a rest that God has exemplified, that God has enjoyed. Friends, don't miss the reality That whatever this rest is and whatever we talk about in a few moments, that it exists because it's God's idea and because God planned it and God intended it for our benefit and for our good and for our purpose. And he even modeled it so so that God did not need to rest. I mean, God doesn't stand tired at the end of six days of creation, weary from all of his work, thinking, man, I just need a nap or a vacation, anything like that. So why in the world does scripture so clearly teach us that Six days he labored in creation, and on the seventh he rested from his work. It is because, according to his grace, he intended, by way of creation, to institute an order for the rest of his people. We talk about things as a creation ordinance. In other words, the way God made things by his design so that they must stand for all of time, whether any human, any sinner, any person ever gives credence to it at all. Um, it's, one of the, it's one of the primary arguments that we have against homosexuality and homosexual marriage, that by God's very design, he made them male and female and married them together, brought Eve to Adam to be his helpmate, and the two only, became one flesh, one male, one female. And that did not happen because of the law that he gave. It wasn't some command that came later. It is that way by God's design at creation. That's called a creation ordinance. That's the order of things by God's sovereign design. Friends, it should be good news to you to know that God in his sovereign rulership instituted a rest for you at creation. Six days he labored and on the seventh he rested, not because he needed it, but because we needed it. Because we needed it then and because we would need it for all of eternity. And so the, going back to verse one, it it, it should be good news to us, friends, that the promise of entering his rest still stands. Because like the Israelites who were not, as we'll talk about in a moment, who were prevented from entering into the land of Canaan, a a, a temporal picture of that rest to come. As they were prevented from doing that because of sin and disobedience and unbelief, 
we are full of sin and disobedience and at times unbelief. And it's good news to us that by God's design, there is this day of rest and the promise of God of entering the rest that he has ordained still stands. I asked you a few moments ago, are you tired? Friends, many of us are. We work 40, 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 hours a week. Many of us have multiple children. Perhaps, like you, your children have been dealing with the stomach bug all night, every night, as have mine. That's why they're not here this, today. We spend exorbitant amounts of money to fly all over the globe in search of rest. We have hobbies because we hope that they're going to give us rest. We make relationships and friendships because we hope in some way that they're going to give us rest. We just want to get away. We just want to rest sometimes because we're tired. And and friends, we're going to talk about what this rest he's talking about is in just a moment. But at the very outset, I I want you to be thankful for the reality that by God's design, the promise of his rest exists and still stands for God's people. So how do we enter into it? Whatever the rest is that he's talking about here, how is it that we enter into it? And perhaps by way of the argument as it's given in these verses, it's better for us to ask the question in the negative, what is it that would keep someone from entering into this promised rest, the opportunity that still stands? So let's consider then Paul's example. As I said, he's quoting from Psalm 95. He's interpreting and applying that verse. And that's a psalm that recounts for us the tragedy of the children of Israel in the exodus out of Egypt. And I don't want to recount all of that for you, but I want to give you just a bit so you can understand. Here are the Israelites, God's chosen people. They are in bondage, slavery in Egypt. They are beaten and starved and separated. They have very little clothes. They are not given good shelter. They are in one of the most destitute, destructive, debilitating circumstances that a human could possibly find themselves in. And they exist in that circumstance for quite a long period of time until by God's grace, Moses is sent with his brother Aaron. Ultimately, God intervenes and works and delivers them out of Egypt. They just pack up and walk out from under the nose of a Pharaoh who both wanted and needed their help and had persecuted and held them down for so long. They march out of Egypt by God's care. They get over to the Red Sea and God holds up a wall of water, instantly causing the bottom of the sea to not be soupy and muddy, but the literal translation tells us that they crossed over on dry land, hard parched earth miraculously so that their women and children, cattle and buggies and so forth could all pass over the sea um, only to get to the other side and realize that Pharaoh had had a change of heart and decided he was going to pursue the Israelites to conquer them and bring them back. And as their pursuers came after them, they get into the midst of the dry ground and God releases the wall of water on them and takes out all of them and delivers his people. He then leads them in the wilderness by this pillar that is before them, a pillar of smoke that provides them with great shade and benefit in the day, knowing the direction to take. And a pillar that lights up in fire at night, providing them heat and protection and direction. All of this miraculous by God's design. Where do they get their food? From God Almighty, miraculously so. But you know what happens? In light of all of this that they've experienced, they get out in the wilderness and they're thirsty. 
And they don't have quite as much to drink as they would have liked. And they begin to grumble against Moses and they begin to grumble against God. And they begin to long for Egypt. They begin to want to go back to Egypt because they failed to trust in God's provision. Okay, and, and so ultimately the problem was not that they demanded water, as it tells us. The problem was that they were not believing, they were not trusting, but they had an evil and unbelieving heart. So that in God's care, they had been given to sip, to, to taste and to see how good God is, how mighty God is, how powerful God is. Certainly, if holding up the Red Sea and creating a dry ground to pass over it on is nothing for the Lord, then providing some food and water would be nothing for him also. It's almost staggering to me, but I, I try not to look at it like that. I know I'm just as wicked as they were, and I, I, I refuse God's goodness just as much as they do. But they had been given to, to sort of sip of God's goodness, to taste and see of his power and his might and his provision, but they rejected and spit it out. And the consequence of that was that an entire generation of the Israelites, an entire generation under a certain age, over a certain age, would not be allowed to enter into the land of Canaan that God had promised. That's where he was leading them. And when they got there, they were not going to be, so they had to wander around for 40 years, the 40-year wandering in the wilderness, so that the entire generation, hundreds of thousands of these people, on account of their disobedience and unbelief, they perish in the wilderness, and they are not allowed to enter into the land of Canaan, where God is going to provide for them some rest from their troubles and from their wilderness wanderings. Um, Paul the author of this letter is using that example as a, as a picture, okay, of, of all of the rest that he's going to talk about in, in just a few moments. The question, though, for us, at least at this point, is what was the reason that they were not allowed to enter the land of Canaan? As it, as it reflected, it resembled this rest that was been promised them. What was it that kept them out for all the generation that died? Well, it says that they were disobedient, okay? It says that they were disobedient. Look there at verses 2. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united in faith, those that listened. For we have believed, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. For he has somewhere spoken to the seventh day, God rested, they shall not enter my rest. Why was it that they did not enter the rest? Well, we may be prone to say that they did not obey God, they disobeyed God in some legalistic sense. The reality, though, is, as this scripture makes clear, they were not allowed to enter the land of Canaan and the rest that it would have provided because of their unbelief, their lack of faith, not their disobedience to any given command or set of commands. You find that. Go back up to verse 18 of chapter 3. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? But now look at verse 19, the clarification. So we see that they were unable to enter, that is the land, because of unbelief. Go down to the end of verse 2, as I read it just a moment ago. The message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those that listened. For we who believed entered that rest. You see that in verse 3. Go down to verse 6, the latter part of that. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter into it, that is, to this rest, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Points to them a certain day, saying today it is the day. What was the disobedience? The disobedience, the failure to keep God's commands, the the, the, the unwillingness, the inability to honor God with their works, it was the expression of the unbelief in their heart. It was the manifestation of the corruption on the inside. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to me that those who had seen God do so much could have been so quick not to believe. Do you mean that it's possible for some to have tasted and seen to such a degree and not to believe anyway and to be prevented from entering into the rest? I have, here's a question. How do you know if that's you? See, just like with the Israelites, it's very possible that while we've not been led out of bondage in Egypt and while we've not crossed over the Red Sea, while we've not had a pillar of smoke and a fire, Friends, we have seen God do great and wondrous things in our midst and in our lives and in our families and in our churches. We have experienced his provision in a way that those people had not. We have his word. We have seen Jesus Christ. The word has been made flesh. The the gospel has come. Fulfillment, fruition, redemption has been both accomplished and applied for his people We come and we hear the word again and again and again. Sunday after Sunday, people sit in pews and they hear the gospel. They have church membership. They go through the motions. Do you think it's possible that like the Israelites, any of them have tasted and seen and experienced, but yet they do not believe? Notice what he says down at the end of verse 11 here. He implores them, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That is, let us labor. Let us do everything we can do to make sure that we will not fail as they fail, that we will not be those who have tasted and seen and yet reject in unbelief. How is it that we are to do that? Look at what he says. You want to know if it's you? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and here it is, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How do we strive to enter to ensure that we do not have an unbelieving heart found in us in wickedness? By the word. What is it that can discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart? The word of God. What is it that can quicken and convict the heart of sin, exposing unbelief and a lack of faith? It is the word of God. Friends, if we want to be assured of our faith, let us turn to the word. If we want to be convicted of our sin, let us turn to the word. And if we want to guard against an unbelieving and evil heart that leads to disobedience and unbelief, let us daily, moment by moment, turn to the word. It's the truth of Psalm 1. For blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And upon it he meditates day and night. He becomes like a tree that is planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season, that leaf does not wither, and in all he does, he prospers. It's not talking necessarily about a temporal prosperity. It's talking about a spiritual one. Friends, if we want to be assured that we're going to enter the rest by faith, by belief, without being failing in this disobedience as the Israelites did, let us turn to the word. 
let's move on. Where, where do we find this rest, though? What, what is the rest that he's talking about? Is this rest the land of Canaan? This picture that he's using from the Israelites? I mean, are, 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 are we to be looking for our Canaan? As many people who would preach this text would tell you, that we just need to believe that in the midst of this valley, this darkness, this difficulty, this tragedy of your life, if you'll just trust in God, that he's going to lead you into your Canaan. Whatever that Canaan is, new job, better spouse. You know, he's just going to fix your problems. He's just going to lead you into your Canaan. Is that the rest that he's talking about? Maybe it's some wonderful vacation. God's going to give you the money to take a trip to Europe with your, with your wife and your kids or whatever. I mean, is, is that the rest that he's talking about? Friends, absolutely not. And it's abundantly clear in these verses. Let's go to verses 8, 9, and 10. Look at what he says. He clarifies now because he's been using this picture from the Old Testament Israelites. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What was the rest that Joshua might have given them or they might be prone to think that they had received this rest. It's the land of Canaan. For when the Israelites got to the land of Canaan, before they were allowed to pass over and all of the generation had to perish, Moses was among them and God killed Moses and buried him in the valley of Elah, the end of Deuteronomy there. And then he raises up Joshua to lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. So he leads them in, they conquer all the people's by God's care, design, provision. And then they enjoy this rest to some degree in the land of Canaan. But do you see what he's saying in verse 8? For if Joshua had given them rest, that is full rest, complete rest, the rest that he's talking about being promised in verse 1, then there would be no need for God to speak of a day later on that is coming that will give us rest. There is this rest that remains. It is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It is a spiritual rest rest. Go back. Let me show you something. Go back to verse two. Notice that the benefit of this rest, the benefit of hearing and believing the good news is that you get to enter into the rest. In the New Testament, what is the language of good news? What is the good news? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So so notice what he says. Verse two, For good news came to us just as to them. If you wonder about the gospel in the Old Testament, he says that it was there. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to his account as righteousness. They were saved by faith, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wonder about the gospel in the Old Testament, the author of this letter says it was there even with them. For good news came to us today, the church, just as it did to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they did not believe. So that believing in whatever the source of this rest is, believing in it is a, the benefit is that we get to enter into the rest. What is the good news that we believe in? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down to verse 14 and you see it more clearly. Right after verse 13, he's making these arguments. Since, so on account of all I just said, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. 
the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's, he's fixing to enter into his discussion, his articulation about the great high priest that we have in Jesus Christ. So in other words, it is his argumentation about the belief that leads to rest that ultimately leads him to talk about Jesus. Why? Because the only rest that he is speaking about is not a land of Canaan. It's not some temporal reality of rest, vacation, fixing of problems, alleviation of difficulties. It's none of those things. The rest that has been promised is the rest that comes to us by way of Jesus Christ and our union with him. To take it a step further, in other words, it is by the high priestly ministry of Jesus on our behalf that we find this rest. Well, what does the priestly ministry of Jesus accomplish? As our great high priest, he goes before God on our account And he mediates between the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the wickedness of our hearts. So that by way of this mediation and this priestly ministry, sinners are made righteous. And by way of their being made righteous, they are reconciled with God. That's the ultimate rest. That's the ultimate rest. And that actually leads us to the last question. And I want to go straight there. Jump to it and spend just a few minutes here at the end. Why do we need it? This rest that comes to us by way of our union with Jesus Christ, why do we need this rest? Friends, the most tiresome endeavor is not physical, it is spiritual. Nothing will break your back and burden your soul like trying to climb the mountain of self-righteousness. No matter how many hours you work in a week, no matter how difficult your family life may be, no matter how difficult, whatever it is that you labor to do, friends, listen very carefully. There is no work that will kill you faster than the work of trying to make yourself good enough. Trying to make yourself righteous. So if we go back, the rest that we find in Christ is rest, it is benefit, it is good news, because it frees us from the most tiresome, backbreaking rest of trying to be made righteous of our own. If we are declared righteous in Jesus, if we are united with his righteousness and obedience, and if it is credited to our account, thereby being reconciled with God, we are freed from the tyranny of the law and the obligatory compulsion of having to keep it in order to be good enough. Look at what he says in verse 13. I love this. You may wonder why this is here. It seems to kind of be stuck on the end. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The idea that we will stand before God and we will have our lives filleted open and exposed. Every deed, every thought, every intention, and we will give an account for those things. Friends, that will encourage you to work tirelessly 
to, to know that you're going to stand before God with your entire life wide open. The problem is, is it's not a problem that you can fix. No matter how hard we work to overcome our sin, it will always remain, and we know that. And so we fear standing before God. But if we are united in Christ by faith, then when we stand before God, fully exposed, our deeds being made evident, our thoughts being known, giving account for all of those things, we have a mediator. And he stands between us and God. And we do not have to fear. That's why the gospel is good news. That's how Jesus provides us with true rest. That is the rest that we long for, the rest that we need. Um, one pastor that I, that I love, Tim Keller, he, he, when he talks about this labor in life, he talks about the work behind the work. Why do we work so hard? Why do we do all that we do? Why do we give so much blood, sweat, and tears to so many things? He says it's because ultimately at the very end of it, we're trying to make ourselves worthy. We're trying to be something that we're not. We're trying to make ourselves righteous, acceptable, because we fear standing before God one day and having all of our deeds exposed. We desire to be free from this labor, and the only freedom and rest that we'll find is in Christ, because he is acceptable, because he is righteous. Because he takes our sin and he stands before God on our behalf. There was a, there was a quote not um, too many years ago, but some years ago in Vogue magazine. I've, I've shared this with many of you before, but I think it's a great quote. In an interview with Madonna, uh, the, 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 the writers in Vogue magazine, they were asking Madonna about her longevity in such a fickle uh, market like fame and music and, and how she could have worked so hard for so long, what was it that drove her to continue to labor to such a degree to continue to be relevant in the music industry? And her answer is very telling. Interestingly, she, it's not because, at least by way of what she says, it's not because of how much she loves music. It's not because of this creative desire that she has that just has to come out. It's not because of, it's, it's not because of how much she loves what she does. It's not because of the joy that it brings. None of those things. Listen to what she says. Um, Speaking about how it is she is so driven to continue to work so hard. She says, well, every time I accomplish something great, I feel like a special human being. But after a little while, I feel mediocre and uninteresting again. So I find I have to get myself past this again and again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. I have to prove I'm somebody. Oh. How weary she must be to live every moment of every day by the fear of being nothing. To have to work day after day after day to make something of yourself. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel teaches us that we can never be any more valuable than we are now in Jesus Christ. It teaches us that we can never be any more special 
than we are now in Jesus Christ. It teaches us that we can never be any more loved than we are now in Jesus Christ. That we can never be any more acceptable to God than we are now in Jesus Christ. Do you see then that if by grace through faith we are united with Jesus, then we can rest from that work. Because we don't have to make something of ourselves. God has made something of us in Jesus. We are no longer slaves to the law. Where we fear if we don't keep it, we won't be good enough. We're now free as slaves to Jesus. To serve God because of his creating us to serve him and the pleasure that he derives in our service. In the famous movie Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams, one of the characters, he's a runner. And he's being asked about his running and why he does it. The joy of doing it, the love of doing it. It's a great quote. He says, well... God created me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I can feel his pleasure. See, he's free. And what a rest there is in Christ. Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says this. And hear these words in light of the teaching that we have seen from Hebrews chapter 4 on this rest to be found in Christ. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Friends, if you're tired, if you're weary of trying to make yourself good enough, quit quit laboring and come to Jesus for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, um, we seek rest from a great many sources. And the reality is the rest that they provide is fleeting and short-lived. God, we confess right now that the rest our soul longs for can only be found in Christ. We know that despite our best efforts, we will never be acceptable. We will never be without sin. We will never be good enough. And so we look to you. We stand in need of an alien righteousness, the righteousness of another. We stand in need of an obedience that is not our own. God, we thank you that you've given us that righteousness and obedience in Christ. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would be found this morning believing in him. And by way of our belief, not our works, we would enter into the rest that you've promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.